Seven Deaths, Chapter 2, Scythehood, by Unwritten Curse, narrated by Maddie Malfoy for HP Fanfic Talk. This is rated M for mature audiences with advisories for sexual content and violence. 21st September, 2114. When she saw him on the steps of the conclave, she felt a stirring of the old infatuation in her gut, but it had been tempered by time, twenty years worth. So when he approached her to shake her hand for perhaps the first time in a decade, she smiled and wished him well. He, in turn, congratulated her on her reputation as Miss Massacre, gained through her controversial mask-leaning of the remaining corrupt politicians for moral times. She shrugged, not willing to admit that she had acted in haste. She had, after all, broken the second commandment, though it had been overlooked as most of the world was ready to be rid of any link to the shattered government of the mortal age. She was also not willing to admit that she had done it for him. It was his idea that had inspired her, his desire to rid the world of evil in order to forge a new path forward. Instead, she thanked him for his interest, and they parted ways congenially. Once out of sight, she breathed a sigh, thankful he had not asked her why she had chosen Marie Curie as her patron historic. She would have invented a reason, of course, anything not to divulge that she had chosen her name to match his. Faraday and Curie, two groundbreaking scientists and chemists, two luminaries, the pair of them. Scythe Curie took her seat amongst the crowds of her people, the killing angels, the Scythe of Midmerica. 19th October, 2140. No one visited mortal art museums in the Age of Immortality, though the museum stayed open, preserving paintings and sculptures and exhibits curated by mortal artists who knew what it meant to feel pain and grief and joy in turn. It was hard for the immortal consumer to understand these silly mortal emotions, and thus the halls remained virtually empty. Scythe Curie took advantage, often coming to sit alone and ponder, ensconced in a marble tile in sweet, sweet silence. She didn't always think about death. Sometimes she thought about the most humane methods of gleaning. Sometimes she thought about how to reason with the new order. There were whispers of lobbying for more mask leanings as a way to fulfill quota. And sometimes she thought about her parents, who had been all too ready to cast her aside for an eternity of immunity for the promise of evading the unknown. So, as it turned out, she did always think about death. Or life. But as a scythe, the two concepts seemed to bleed into one as she made a living by killing. She was so caught up in her thoughts and so accustomed to sitting uninterrupted that she didn't notice Scythe Faraday approaching until he sat down beside her, wearing a scarf and a knowing smile. Heavens, she squeaked, bracing herself. Have you ever been told not to seek up on a scythe? Faraday laughed warmly. Hello, Scythe Curie, said, resting a hand gently on her shoulder and then letting it fall to his lap. Scythe Curie echoed his laugh as she took in Faraday's appearance. He had clearly turned the corner recently, just as she had. He appeared to be in his mid-thirties again, his hair a deep chestnut brown just like she remembered it. He'd allowed a smattering of facial hair to grow along his jawline and his eyes. Though his body had been set back to a younger figure, his eyes held their age. As he gazed back at her, she could feel the depth of his wisdom as well as the years of history between them. What brings you here, Scythe Faraday, she asked, grounding her feet to keep herself focused on the present. Surely not the crowds. He shook his head, smiling. I come for the art, actually, he replied. It helps me glean. If I can get into the headspace of a mortal man, I feel like I glean with more patience, more empathy. Immortality is too unfeeling, so I come here. He extended an arm, gesturing to the paintings that hung on the walls, gathering dust. Curie looked away, feeling humbled and inspired, as she often did in Faraday's company. There is something about mortal art, she agreed. It's as if the artists leave their souls on the canvas, like they're living through their paintbrushes. Faraday nodded. I presume it's because they knew that they would die, and so they had to leave pieces of their lives behind in their art, he said. Curie swallowed. It's been too long, she said quietly. It has, Faraday agreed. He swiveled just slightly to face her more directly. Speaking of too long, he continued, there's something I've been meaning to ask you these past, what, 50 years? Yes? 
Why did you agree to come on as my apprentice? You seemed so resistant at first, and then... He stopped, then lifted his hands in a gesture of puzzlement, almost like a shrug. You were very persuasive, she said with a smile. Faraday laughed again. The sound echoed around the empty room, reminding Curie just how alone they were. Alone together. I'm not sure I can put it into words, she continued, trying not to notice the charge in the air as Faraday leaned closer. Something changed when I saw you glean Mr. Teague. I had never really thought about death before that day. It was something so remote that it barely registered. I woke up, wandered around blindly, and went to sleep. Day after day after day. And then I saw you glean Mr. Teague, and I suddenly realized that I was wasting something precious. I didn't know what it was then, and I'm still not sure I have it all figured out. But when you offered me the apprenticeship, I thought, this is it. Not immediately, of course. It took some time. But there you have it. Faraday looked away, presumably lost in thought. Curie tucked a stray hair behind her ear as she waited for his response, suddenly acutely aware of their proximity. They hadn't spoken like this since her apprenticeship. They moved in the same circles within the sight of them, yes, but never alone. Never like this. I'm sorry, Curie, he said finally. I'm sorry that I brought you into this life. I wanted desperately to pass on my ideals, but I was young and naive, and I didn't stop to think about the burden I was placing on your back. Nonsense, Curie hissed. Faraday raised an eyebrow at her. You have no reason to apologize. He nodded, smiling again. All the same, he replied. I'm glad I did. And somehow, his apology felt like it covered much more than his regret over bringing her into this dark and burdensome fold. It felt like healing. It felt like a promise. It felt like an end and a beginning all rolled into one, and she knew from this point forward that they would no longer dance this dance of avoiding each other in plain sight. Would you care to see my favorite painting? He asked suddenly, holding out his hand to Curie in a gesture of invitation. I'd love nothing more, she responded, taking his hand as he led her through the halls of the art museum, alone, but alone together. 10th December, 2141. As Curie stepped onto Scythe Faraday's doorstep, the snow falling in spiraling flurries and dusting the pavement, she thought back to holidays when she was young. There was a sacredness to those memories, a distinct sense of before, here, and the after. The holidays felt no different than the rest of the year, save for the constant feeling of numbness at the tip of her nose. The trajectory of her life had changed dramatically since becoming a scythe, as had her relationship with Faraday. She would never forget the look he had given her, half proud, half pained, as she crossed the stage at Conclave to receive her scythe spring years ago. In the years that followed, they ran into each other occasionally. Through strained interactions, she learned about his subsequent apprentices, and he learned about her growing reputation as the Grand Dame of Death. There was always something left unsaid. For whose sake, Curie was never sure. But today, standing on his stoop as he opened the door with a brilliant smile, Curie knew things had changed once again, and her heart thumped in fearful excitement. Scythe Curie, he greeted her, gesturing for her to step inside. Always a pleasure. I can't stay, Scythe Faraday, she responded, looking away. Or, I shouldn't. I have much to do but I wanted to leave this book with you. I saw it in my stacks and was reminded of a conversation we'd had last year about how mortal art contained pieces of uh, the artist's souls. This is a book on art theory, and it looks closely at the relationship between the artist and the art, as well as the part the viewer plays in the creation and consumption of the piece. Stimulating, he replied, his eyebrows furrowing as he flipped the book over in his palms and read the summary on the back cover. Yes, yes, Curie said, nodding. Well, have a pleasant evening. Curie, Faraday echoed, glancing from the book to her face with narrowed eyes. You must at least come in for a mug of tea. It's freezing out there. And did you walk? Curie shrugged. You know I'm not a fan of public cars. They're much too fast. I'd rather enjoy the scenery and my own thoughts. Besides, your house isn't far. Only 3.2 miles, he winked, causing her heart to beat erratically, then pulled the door open even wider. Come in, for heaven's sake. What's the rush? We are immortal, are we not? Curie conceded, stepping over the threshold and into the same home that she had shared with Faraday as mentor and mentee. She was struck immediately by the rich, warm scent of cinnamon. She sighed, taking it all in. Faraday led her through the foyer and into the kitchen, where she took a seat. Her seat. 
as he busied himself with the kettle. He was facing away from her, so she watched him with unbridled curiosity. When she was 17 and he was 22, she would watch him move like this. She would admire the lines of his shoulders, the tightness of his back and arms, sculpted by years of scythe training. She bit her lip, remembering how he had become her whole world, how she had craved him. As foolish as she had been at 17 to allow herself to be overtaken by infatuation, she couldn't blame her younger self for admiring the view. Faraday was a handsome man. Age had only increased his appeal, adding a calm confidence to his posture, a sense of self that commanded a room. Curie shook her head. She knew better now. His task complete, Scythe Faraday approached the table, a steaming mug of peppermint tea in each hand. Curie accepted one and immediately brought it to her nose, taking a deep breath of the cloyingly sweet steam. Your favorite, yes? Faraday mused before taking a sip of his own tea. You remembered, Curie replied. Some days I find it hard to forget, Faraday admitted. You were my first, and if I'm being honest, my favorite apprentice. You were cunning, determined. You presented me with a true challenge. Curie couldn't stop herself from blushing. You flatter an old woman, she said, busying herself with her tea so as to avoid eye contact. Faraday's voice was gentle as he replied, You don't look like an old woman to me. You look almost as I remember you when you last stepped foot in this house. Curie laughed. That's entirely my fault, sighed Faraday. I reached at thirty and it's much too young. I miss the silver in my hair. It afforded me a certain respect. Ah, yes, was all Faraday said in response. It came out as a sigh. The sky outside gradually darkened, bleeding from blue to orange to purple as they sat and reminisced. Faraday laughed as Curie reminded him of the first and only time she had defeated him at Bokatar. He said he could still remember the look of triumph in her eyes. They spoke of the philosophers they had studied, and Curie admitted that she had always admired his insistence on understanding what it meant to be human as a prerequisite for gleaning. They discussed the difficulty of being a scythe, the loneliness, the discipline, and yet the deep, abiding sense of duty. Their half-empty mugs of tea grew cold as conversation stretched top between them. The shadows lengthened, and something forgotten ignited in scythe Curie's chest. Did I ever tell you that I thought you meant to kill me the night you snuck into my room and asked for my mug? Faraday confessed suddenly. You what? Curie looked down at her hands. She wasn't sure whether to laugh or apologize profusely, so she aimed somewhere in the middle. No, you haven't. We haven't spoken of that embarrassing night. Until now. When she looked up again, Faraday's expression had grown intense. His eyes were all over her face, as though memorizing every last detail, soaking her in. She bit her lip. Our connection was strong, he continued, almost deadly. I assume the worst, but you... Please, she whispered, don't. Curie. His hand was on her chin now. He tilted her head up to meet his gaze. I don't think you know how much you've always meant to me. His hot breath was on her face, and she was seventeen again, full of hope and adrenaline and desperately in love. I was stupid, Faraday, she said, pulling away. I wanted something I couldn't have. Faraday paused, considering her. His hand remained in the air, as if still cupping her chin. And now? he said, his voice small. Do I still want you? she asked, and he nodded. I've always wanted you, but... The Ninth Commandment? Yes. Scythe Faraday sighed, but he did not fall back. Instead, he moved from his chair to kneel before her, taking her hands in his. She let him. She let him hold her and look at her, though tears welled in her eyes, though her brokenness was on display. Can I tell you one thing, just one thing before I go? She asked, her throat thick with tears. Anything, he breathed. She swallowed. She could hear blood rushing in her ears and the clock ticking in the stillness. She gripped his hands like a lifeline. It was all for you, she said. My name, Marie Curie, the deed that earned me the title Miss Massacre, the Grand Dame of Death. It was all to please you, to earn your affection. Scythe Faraday's lips were on hers before she could register his movement. They were warm, inviting, and she leaned into him, letting his fingers trace shapes across her arms, over her shoulders, against her neck. When he pulled away, she felt breathless. You didn't need to earn my affection, he said, his eyes twinkling. You always had it. And then he was kissing her again, and the tears kept coming as though a dam inside of her, one of her own creation, had finally broken. 
He kissed her tears as she cried, and she felt herself pulling apart in the most brilliant agony. Let's forget about the ninth commandment, he said. Will you stay? Just for tonight. She nodded, biting her lip. What was your name before? She found herself asking as she moved in, pulling his hands to her chest. Gerald, he breathed, then grimaced. Sorry, it's just, it's not me anymore. Curie nodded. She ran her fingertips across the back of his hand down his arm. I need to call you something else, she continued, something that isn't a title. Honorable Cy Faraday. Something just for me. Faraday stood, pushing his chair out with a grating scrape. She stood to meet him, letting his hands move down her sides, letting them rest gently against the curve of her waist. Call me Michael, he whispered into the skin of her neck. It was Faraday's name. And I am more him than Marie, she interrupted, the urgency catching her in a moment of need. Call me Marie. And then his hands were slipping underneath her scythe ropes, pulling them up and up and sending them in a billowing cloud to the floor. His hands were on her skin as his lips crashed into hers. She leaned against the cool wood of the kitchen table and he paused only to let his own robes fall before climbing her lips again, the heat crashing in waves through her body at the feeling of his skin against hers. She grabbed at his hair, pulling him in, and he snaked a hand down between her thighs to part her legs. When he asked permission to make love to her until morning, she responded by wrapping her legs around him and moaning a breathy please. He kissed her again, roughly, hungrily, and then lowered himself into her in a powerful thrust that sent her into outer space. December 2141 to February 2149. Sometimes they talked about the Ninth Commandment. It hung over them like an uninvited guest, whispering to them in the night as they held each other close that they were wrong, that this was forbidden. The life of a scythe was meant to be a solitary one. They were meant to dedicate themselves to their craft, to the souls of those they gleaned, and to not allow distractions. More often, they didn't talk about the Ninth Commandment. They let it be. If they didn't bother it, they believed it wouldn't bother them. They called their relationship a companionship of convenience, two sides living together, gleaning together. They each knew the other's life so intimately, their views of the world mutually shaped by the blood they had spilled, that their companionship seemed inevitable. But Marie could feel in her bones that this was more than companionship. From the very beginning, they had been explicably drawn to each other. It wasn't just a companionship of convenience that they enjoyed. It was a fusing of souls. And so they built a life together. Marie moved into Michael's home, bringing with her the only belongings permitted to her as a scythe. Her ring, which granted immunity, her robes, and her gleaning journal. She asked Michael about his before, and he about hers. She read to him from books about philosophy, art, and history. She memorized the constellations of his birthmarks as she pressed her mouth to his acres of pearlescent skin. She never took him for granted because a part of her always knew it would end. Though they became braver, and perhaps stupider, with every passing year, she could sense that their time was limited. It made her desperate, wild, because with Michael, it felt like coming home. When Highblade's Anocrates finally appeared on their doorstep on a blustery January morning, she let him in, all too aware of why he had come. They were summoned before the global conclave on the island of the Enduring Heart, where Supreme Blade Prometheus would give them their sentence. During the transatlantic flight, as she climbed on Michael's hands and wept, Marie convinced herself that they would be stripped of their robes and banished to another region. Prometheus, however, had other plans. You are hereby sentenced to die seven deaths, one for every year of your affair, and remain separated for a period of seventy years. The Supreme Blade was nothing if not poetic. Your reputation precedes you, was his response to the look of pure shock on their faces, both of you. You are far too important to the scythe dump to be removed from your positions. Their deaths were carried out on the island of the Endura in front of the entire World Scythe Council. Marie would never forget gazing out the window at the rippling waves at the vastness of the ocean before she was killed the first time, a swift knife to the heart. She remembered praying that she would be revived without the peace of her that loved Scythe Faraday, Michael. This was her prayer before every death, yet she awoke time and again with an ache much deeper than the physical wounds from which she had to recover. She remembered thinking how this would make her a better Scythe because now she knew what it meant to lose everything. 9th May, 2220. A lot can happen in 70 years. 
Your heart can harden. It can turn from the living. It can become stone. And it can crack slowly and crumble. But it can also rise from the ashes like a phoenix. It can begin beating again even when you thought it had finished. And when you see Scythe Faraday again, we can actually stand before him and shake his hand. You can somehow do so without breaking. You can greet him as a friend and you can smile. You can keep going.